0: Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Jeannie Fontana and Robin Carhart-Harris. Jeannie is a MD-PhD and a leader in the healthcare space. She's been instrumental in increasing federal funding for ALS research and is a founding trustee of the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, where she played a pivotal role in creating the world's largest stem cell granting agency with an $8.5 billion budget. Under her influence, the agency achieved FDA approvals, fast-track designations, and launched groundbreaking clinical trials. Additionally, it helped create over 55,000 jobs in California, 50 new companies, and $10 billion in added state revenue. And now Jeannie is focused on a new initiative, which we'll be talking about. It is called TREAT California, T-R-E-A-T, And this is a citizen-led ballot initiative that will provide $5 billion in funding for research and affordable access to mental health treatments using psychedelic medicines. You can get more information at the website treatcalifornia.org. But the immediate need now is that they have to collect 1 million signatures from registered California voters. So if you are a registered voter in California, you can go to treatcalifornia.org and download a petition, print it out, and sign it. And whether you're a registered California voter or not, you can collect signatures from California residents. And there's more information on the TREAT website about how to do that. And wherever you live on Earth, you can donate to TREAT. Because gathering one million signatures is actually a very expensive thing to do. It usually costs many millions of dollars. Because it all has to be done physically. You can't just sign the petition on the website. You'll hear much more about the initiative from Jeannie in a few moments, but I just wanted to give you the call to action up front. Once again, that website is treat Genie Jeannie and I are also joined today by Robin Carhart Harris, who founded the Center for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College London, the first center of its kind, in 2019. Then in 2021, Robin became the inaugural Ralph Metzner Distinguished Professor of Neurology and Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. He's also been listed by Time Magazine as among the 100 next. This is a group of emerging leaders from around the world who are shaping the future. He holds a PhD in psychopharmacology from the University of Bristol, and he's led neuroimaging studies with LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, and DMT, as well as several clinical trials for psilocybin therapy. And the topic of discussion today is the treat initiative in California and the growing promise of psychedelics for mental health care. We cover some of the recent research and just generally explore how we seem to be at the tipping point here. after all the time that was lost when these compounds were criminalized, it seems that the commitment to research at this point feels rather unstoppable. And it's certainly no exaggeration to say that what happens in California could well determine. What happens in the United States as a whole. And now I bring you, Jeannie Fontana and Robin carhart Harris. I am here with Jeannie Fontana and Robin carhart Harris. Jeannie, Robin, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Sam.
1: Thank you, Sam.
0: So, uh, we're going to talk about psychedelics and uh, their therapeutic potential and the current state of the scientific research. But also, we're going to talk about this very ambitious initiative that Jeannie, you are launching in California. Before we start, perhaps each of you can summarize your professional background and tell me how how you came to focus on this particular issue. So, uh, let's we'll, we'll start with you, Jeannie.
1: <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Robin. Okay. And I are pointing fingers at each other. You first. <laughs> well, I'm trained as a MD PhD, I'm trained as an internist and then I have a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biophysics. I started as a young woman thinking that I was going to develop some therapeutic that would help treat millions of people so I've always kind of had this drive in me since I was since I was young. As I finished all my training which was long and extensive um, my mother was diagnosed with ALS and at the time I remembered it was one of those horrible diseases that I read in my textbook, but Mm. I really did. There was not much known about this. This was back in the late 1990s. And so I thought with all my education and my privilege in life uh, that I had an opportunity to dive into drug discovery to help find um, a therapy, of course, starting off trying to find one for my mother, but then also getting involved with the ALS community and realizing that you know, there's such a desperate need here for research and patient care. So I dove all in. And uh, I don't know how long, which time you want me to spend on this, but uh, I, in my, in this experience brought me to participating in changing federal legislation for ALS. And that mm-hmm. was really empowering for me to know how to work within the system to change. Um, laws that impacted the lives of tens of thousands of ALS patients in perpetuity until the law was changed, and also going back to the Department of Defense and increasing funding for ALS and understanding and learning quickly how to work within the system to increase funding because at the time there was next to zero funding from the National Institutes of Health, which is where most of the funding comes from for basic research. So that was interesting. And then at the same time, uh, human embryonic stem cells were just discovered in the late 1990s, and I happened to be working with um, a very wonderful medical research institute in San Diego where the top scientists there, and one was a leading stem cell scientist and brought this to my attention is not to replace neurons in a dish, but to create a disease in a dish because we can't study human brain tissue easily. So that was very exciting to think about the, having the capability of a large-scale pharmaceutical companies where we could identify molecules, a disease-modifying molecules. Uh, at the same time, George Bush put a moratorium on the funding of embryonic stem cells for mm. political reasons, and so it was a um, one of those aha moments where you say, "Wait, this, there's some real therapeutic benefits from this research," um, and not having any funding and watching uh, all research stopping in essence, just screeching halt and uh, reacting to that. Unfortunately, there was a force of nature here in California from Silicon Valley whose son had juvenile diabetes and he was always looking for a therapeutic cure and had been speaking with the scientists at Stanford and they were talking about the promise of stem cells and recognizing that the federal government was limiting the amount of funding on it. So there's a pathway uh, in California where the citizens can demand that the California government actually provide services that they want. In this case, we launched a citizen driven ballot initiative to create the first of its kind funding agency for embryonic stem cells. and I was on uh, that campaign and educating the public about it and educating doctors and patients and uh, participated in you know editorials and things like that. and I honestly did not think the bill would pass. We were in a a bleeding economy at the time. Uh, And when I was lobbying at the Sacramento with some of the politicians there, they said, wow, this is, yes, it it seems to be promising. And at the time, it really was in its basic research level. But we can't pay our teachers and our our police department and our firemen. And and why should we spend this kind of money on basic research? And I didn't have an answer. I I agreed with them. I said, you know, God, we have to pay our teachers in our... So, but what I learned... Uh, is that in 2004, it was the citizens of California that approved this citizen driven ballot initiative and created the first of its kind and the largest in the world, a $3 billion funding agency focused on stem cell research. So I was honored by being a, a board member creating this new institute. And we were charged with expediting bench to bedside research, which is, normally takes about 15 years to go from the lab to a therapy at the bedside. And on average in the $2,000 was about $1.5 billion. So we wanted to set up a granting agency that was improved upon the NIH's system. And we had people from all over the country and the world actually reviewing the different granting agencies. And we set up something that I think by all accounts ended up being pretty successful. So by the end of the 15 years when the money ran up, we had uh, two FDA-approved therapeutics and about nine breakthrough and fast-track therapeutics. And importantly, we had 60 compounds, what we say, in the pipeline that were deserving of further funding. So the same force of nature went back to the voters of California during the height of the pandemic and qualified for the ballot. And uh, the voters of California approved an additional $5.5 billion. So, you know, in addition to bringing therapies to... The patients, uh, serum is also credited with bringing about 55,000 jobs, additional jobs to California, and uh, 50 companies born out of this, and additional about $10 billion in revenue to the state. So I recognize now that we created and built what is now the regenerative medicine infrastructure, and Mm. it took me a while to really appreciate how amazing that was. And, and uh, I'm so proud of participating in something where we actually, you know, delivered on our promise, which was, you know, expediting bench-to-bedside research and bringing therapies to patients and, and creating a whole new industry of which now we'll combine it with gene editing and, and other future breakthroughs that we have in medicine that will be combined, and we will actually cure some incurable diseases now. Nice. nice. So this is a long introduction. I've stopped yeah, here no, because great. I could keep on going.
0: Yeah. Well, no, we'll we'll pick up the the trail there, talking about that initiative pathway. But let's bring in Robin. Robin, what? How did you come to study the brain and uh, the nervous system, and what have you focused on? And how did you come to focus on psychedelics?
2: Yeah. So uh, I was a curious teenager. I you could say I had some experiences, and I felt a uh, Gravitational pull to psychology. I did a a degree in in psychology um, in my hometown of Bournemouth on the south coast of England. And then towards the end of that, I uh, enrolled to do a master's in psychoanalysis. So I was especially drawn to depth psychology. But that said, I was also drawn to rigorous uh, scientific. uh, Approaches to the mind, uh, perhaps psychoanalysis, you know, can be a little weak in, in that sense. Mm. But um, a few, a so few parts, th- parts of
0: it have not aged especially well. <laughs> yeah. But maybe some of them
2: have, mm. and maybe some, are sometimes a little bit underappreciated. But yeah, I was drawn to neuroscience, and I ended up uh, getting lucky with an opportunity at the University of Bristol to do a PhD in psychopharmacology. Focusing on the serotonin system, doing some polysomnography, so sleep recordings of uh, MDMA users and uh, matched controls who had their serotonin systems stressed with something called tryptophan depletion, a dietary manipulation. But anyway, this was this was kind of my way in and. I did come to that unit. It was David Nutt's unit. Professor David Nutt, Mm -hmm. former so-called drug czar in the UK, the the chief scientific advisor to the UK government on on drug policy. And I came knocking on his door asking to do psychedelic research, and he opened it, saying, "Well, you can do some serotonin research, and we'll see how things go." But uh, I was especially interested in psychedelics. I'd learnt of their history being used as tools to assist psychotherapy. And actually often that was a, a kind of depth psychotherapy and a similar in a sense, quite similar to, to psychoanalysis, albeit an accelerated version. Mm. And that, that was kind of my way in. So on completing my PhD, then I had, again, a good opportunity, some good fortune through a visionary philanthropist, Amanda Fielding of the Beckley Foundation, to do some brain imaging work that's really what i wanted to do i came to david initially wanting to do an lsd fmri study i had this uh, hypothesis that the uh, psychedelic state was like a waking dream state a hybrid you know dream sleep uh, waking state and i thought through you know the lens of fmri functional brain imaging i could in a sense prove that hypothesis that was my naivety at the time but so that was the that was the initial thread that drew me in, and since then I've done a series of brain imaging studies with a range of different psychedelic drugs, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, DMT, and uh, off the back of that, off off the back of some of the insights that we were getting from the brain imaging, I set up uh, first a, a clinical trial with psilocybin therapy in treatment resistant depression, and then since then that kind of got a Um, ball rolling at a certain time, and uh, I guess we're going to go there. But uh, yes, a a lot of momentum now in in psychedelic medicine.
0: Yeah, well, I want to talk about the state of the research and how you differentiate the promise of of the various compounds you mentioned uh, and perhaps others. But before we go there, let's talk about the TREAT initiative because I want people to to know about it uh, up front here. Uh, my wife, Annika, is, is the one who told me about it, and, and uh, she's been involved with Eugenie, uh, helping it along. And she, you know, in preparation for this conversation, she has let me know that she thinks it's difficult to communicate the full vision of this initiative. And uh, so I'm wondering, Jeannie, can you explain what you're hoping to accomplish and Perhaps anticipate any common misunderstandings of what you're attempting to do.
1: (laughs) I I laugh because it it is a it's an enormous project with many layers. So it, it is a challenge to try to sum it up in a few words, but I've been practicing this quite a bit because I think what we have here is an opportunity to transform the way we deliver mental health care to start in California. These medicines are showing great promise through clinical trials performed from our top academic institutions that are nothing short of jaw-dropping to me. And as a scientist who looks at data, it's rare that one comes across such promising preliminary data with the outcomes of patients who otherwise aren't treatable so the goal of the treat institute is to bring these medicines to the public in a responsible safe and ethical manner now in order to do that is there's a lot of details that need to be addressed but i think we can take uh, the high perspective and talk about how we have to show these medicines to be safe and efficacious, running large-scale clinical trials, and tracking safety data, tracking outcome data, not just during the clinical trial period, but over lengths of time. And if for your listeners that are aware of um, medical studies, something like the Framingham study, where you tracked through a lifetime, actually, um, the outcomes of the patients, I think it's important to look at the different Indications that these medicines can help with. Um, Right now, we know that it requires a therapist in the room. That 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 seems to be the combination of therapy, talk therapy, with these medicines, Um, and that resonates with me as an athlete who was taught how to play a sport. When you're taught how to do something, you can do it better. And I think in our society, we're not taught how to manage our emotions in a healthy way. Mm. So I think the patients need to be prepared and educated with how to experience these medicines and what to importantly do with the insights and emotions elicited through the through the medicine. So integration is a huge component of this. And then importantly is, is access. Uh, I, I believe strongly that these medicines need to be available to all, um, not just the rich right now and not just those that through their insurance policies, they're able to take it and others are not. Uh, We're well aware that the hardest-hit communities in any society are the underserved communities and mental health, uh, while affecting every citizen of America right now, either personally, with their family members, or certainly with their friends, is being touched by this. So the tools, though, that are provided to the underserved communities are particularly sparse. So, the main impetus of the TREAT initiative is to make sure that these, these medicines and treatments are available to all. So, I think I'll stop there because I can take up mm. all your time here telling you about it. So,
0: yeah, well, so I, I want to, I'll remind people at the end of our conversation, but I, I want to get up front the specific call to action, if there is any, for California residents now. And when, what, what, is, what is the actual initiative?
1: We are running a campaign. And it's called the TREAT California Campaign. And TREAT stands for Treatments, Research, Education, Access, and Therapies for Mental Health Using Psychedelic Assisted Therapies. In order to qualify for the ballot, which we're going to begin to do in uh, two weeks, we need a million signatures to sign the petition saying they're interested in this to get on the ballot. The signatures need to come from registered voters. So we appreciate people going to our website. And signing up so that when we get our uh, green light to start collecting signatures, we'll be able to reach you and have you sign this petition. If we don't get the million signatures to qualify for the ballot, then this dream dies. So we are prepared to do what it takes to make sure we qualify for the ballot. Once we've qualified for the ballot, which we intend to do by the year end, we spend all of 2024 educating the public on mental health. Um, on psychedelic-assisted therapies. And then as we get closer to the vote, and we know that there will be a lot of mayhem because it's a big presidential election, but we have to remind people to vote yes on our proposition on November 5th of
0: 2024. Mm. And I'll I'll have a link to the website in the show notes, but what is the website?
1: It's uh, treatcalifornia.org.
0: And... Is there, you need to get signatures, but is there some component of of fundraising here? I mean, is there something you need money for to get those signatures? Thank
1: you very much. Yes, I do. Uh, Running a campaign like this is enormously expensive. In California, it is uh, on average $30 million. and uh, So we need donations. We have a 10-10-10 campaign. We're asking people to donate at least $10. And, of course, it would be nice to have more, but uh, we think, you know, two Starbucks coffees from, from the people to help us pay for the tools that are required to make us be successful with this campaign. So,
0: mm. And obviously you don't have to be in California to donate no, to the
1: campaign. Yes. Thank you for that. In fact, yeah. uh, one of our biggest donors thus far is a conservative Republican from Florida. The ideas are that uh, once we run the trials here in California with the FDA, we get FDA approval. These medicines will be available to everybody in the country. So yes, everybody in the country can donate.
0: Yeah, I want to. I'm glad you mentioned that you had a conservative Republican, at least one backing you, because I want to talk about the coalition you're building in support of this. It it is surprising, and it, it does suggest that. There's a path here toward bypassing some of the obvious mistakes we made in the 60s around trying to study these compounds and their promise and then uh, also trying to enfranchise everyone in the society to take them. And, and, as, and that translation from the lab to um, the streets was uh, less principled and uh, governable than <laughs> seemed wise in retrospect. Timothy Leary standing at the front of it. I guess uh, my next question here is, there are some dichotomies that seem in opposition to one another, but they they really might not be. I mean, people in the psychedelic space seem to think that there's this, this either-or decision between focusing on decriminalization versus research and you know field research versus lab research. Uh, you can have a medical model by which you frame this, or or a spiritual model. How do you think about those dichotomies, Jeannie? Or is this a, a hallucination we're having about hallucinogens?
1: <laughs> Thank you. And I've I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, I was born in the '60s and raised in the '60s and '70s and witnessed the counterculture revolution and the hippie generation. I also was um, subject to the "Dare to Say No" campaign by the Reagans. Uh, they did a really good job scaring me to death. You know, this is your brain on drugs—that frying pan and and the fear—and then also feeling the societal unrest around the Vietnam War and this cultural revolution that was happening. And the drugs were very front and center. So I was. In it, I didn't participate myself in taking them, but I, I, I lived in it. I lived through it so I could feel the societal push and pull from all parties. And then not really appreciating what it meant when these medicines were locked up, basically. And then what I've learned subsequently is that they were sort of driven underground and there's a couple of paths that I want to share here. One is the reason why I'm sitting here is because of the great work that was done out of our academic institutions, at Johns Hopkins and Yale and uh, NYU, and, and now Robin's work sitting in front of me, and uh, recognizing that these studies were funded by philanthropists, and philanthropists whose lives have been changed by their use of psychedelics early on, and I think most famously is uh, Steve Jobs, who, mm. who attributes his LSD use uh, to helping build the, the iPhone. So I also have great respect for these medicines as, as a clinician. So when you're a clinician, you have to think about all types of patients that come to you, and you have to think about best practices for all your patients. And while I appreciate and respect the psychedelic community's um, experience with the medicines, I hesitate when I think about these medicines being available to the general public without any safety guardrails, any guidance, any supervision. And I, and I am concerned about negative consequences and then having these negative consequences blown up so that the research can't proceed. Because of political actions again, mm. and in fact, there's this uh, wonderful group of of mothers um, who I recently befriended that their children, college age kids, were using uh, psychedelics and uh, for different reasons ended up dying uh, they were they were not supervised, and they thought they could fly and jumped off a bridge, which I always thought was a a sort of a folklore story from the, the government to try to scare us all. But indeed, d- indeed that can happen. And mm. while I appreciate that these mothers are pushing for safe supervision of these medicines, that they, they're, not, they're not protesting and that these medicines should never be brought to the public. In fact, quite the contrary. They say that, that it needs to be brought to the public in a, in a safe, responsible, and ethical way. So allow me a little more time to share with you the vision that I have for what the Treat Institute will do. So we are not directly a decrim or legalization effort. While I don't believe people should be thrown in jail for the use of psychedelics or cannabis for that matter, we are not focused on decrim. Legalization is something I don't support at this period of time. Because when you're bringing it out to the general public, you have to think about all people Mm. who are having access to these medicines. And I believe these medicines need to be treated with respect. The persons need to be prepared and educated and supervised. And allow the information revealed in these medicines to be shown how to incorporate them into their own lives so they can take power and control and agency over their emotional well-being. So, what we attempt, to, what we plan to do at the Treat Institute, which is this five billion dollar funding agency, where we'll have monies allocated towards running large-scale clinical trials with the known medicines, with known indications like anxiety, depression, and PTSD, as well as others. Is that it's important to look at the way these medicines have been administered. We know for thousands of years it's been ceremonially. We also know they've been used in religious settings. We know that sometimes it's used in group settings. And there are benefits for patients under each condition. So I can foresee a situation where we look at, once we show these medicines are safe, effective with the model that's mandated by the FDA right now, which is our two therapists in the room at all times, that we can look at what, how does a patient respond to being in a group setting Likewise, how would they respond to being in a ceremonial setting and even a religious setting? And can we show that it is safe and effective for those people? And if so, can we scale it to maintain safety? So I sort of look at it like going to a restaurant. And as we define more the criteria of what works for the one patient, we're leaving this model of one pill per person for a symptom which sort of masks symptoms, we say, what will benefit that person more as the individual, a more of an integrative approach? So I may prefer to be in a more clinical setting with a one-on-one therapist. And as I work through some of my issues, I may benefit from being amongst a group setting because there's some healing to be gained. By these these group settings, where there's safe containers and people can reflect for you the emotions that you're working through, and there's something very beautiful in those group settings. Likewise, the wisdom keepers and the the way these medicines have been delivered to man for I mean, you could maybe even argue tens of thousands of years, seventy thousand years, have been through these ceremonies, Um, and I think we there's there's some truism to it. And I think we need to look at it. We need to study it. And how do we safely bring this model to the citizens first of California and then the rest of the country? And lastly, we have to honor the spirituality of this. Um, religious leaders, It's it's been really one of the more surprising things for me to start exploring religion and not, and I don't mean the organized religion, but the spirituality behind religion. And there's really not that much of a difference when you're in one's altered state of consciousness and the common descriptions people have of feeling at one or with this love. And if you happen to be religious, you can relate to it as being God, or you can feel Jesus's love, or whatever religion it is that you subscribe to can strengthen that emotion. Mm. So I think the Treat Institute offers an opportunity to really address the real healing potential of these different therapeutic modalities always keeping in mind though is how we can scale it and scale it safely
0: well uh, on the point of scale where does the federal government come in and and how would treat influence federal policy if it passed in california
1: well we're planning on passing <laughs> and what what we're going to set out doing is to test the safety and efficacy of these medicines. While we all believe these medicines to be safe, we, there's really no well-run study that looks at safety. And I think it would be res- irresponsible for of us to, if, if some untoward side effect um, is revealed, when you start looking at thousands of patients, tens of thousands of patients, that something comes up that uh, is deemed uh, too difficult to, to get around, uh, we're going to stop funding. We're, we're not intended to, to fund just because we've been approved for $5 billion. So I'm going to assume that this is safe and that it actually works. And we're working with the FDA and the DEA for approval. And when we get that approval, it becomes available to the country. We will continue to run trials with different medicines and different indications, collecting data all along the way. I talk about our three trifecta of our goals, which is to improve patient outcomes, to show that it's cost-effective, and that we make it accessible to all. So copying the model that we did with the stem cell agency, we actually helped the federal government come up with their own guidelines and regulations around stem cells and how they should be administered to the rest of the country so i view us as working with the existing system bringing evidence and data to support the decisions that we make you know i'm not naive about this but i believe that you know we should make decisions based upon evidence and data as best we can so
0: uh, before we get into the the state of the research uh, i just want to see if i can get more information from you on the coalition you have built in support of treat and i you know perhaps there are people who support you who aren't ready to go public yet so you know feel free to to edit your response but i just know that there's a a fairly bewildering diversity of people and groups that actually support you and you seem to have quite a talent for bringing together collaborators and and supporters who wouldn't normally find themselves on the same team can you say more about that
1: well first of all i'm i'm just honored I'm so honored to work with the people on my team. And I think we are all aligned. And what I love about this project, there's so many things I love about this project, is that we're showing up as very competent, credible, experienced human beings who are aligned to help and serve others. And so in this case, I can touch Every person, because there's not one person, again, i repeat this, in our country that is not personally touched by mental health issues, depression, anxiety, addiction, their family members are, and certainly their friends. So that when we're discussing bringing a new tool, we're bringing a new tool to the healthcare provider to help people that aren't otherwise helped. And we're doing it with rigorous research, oversight, and not just the black and whites of evidence Is we're bringing heart to this. We want to bring compassion to how we're treating people. And by leading with competency and importantly with compassion, I'm able to pull in other like-minded, extraordinary human beings, and I'm so lucky. So to that end, you know, I have to brag about my campaign manager. This is a man who was the senior advisor, essentially the right hand of of Rich Trumka, who was the president of the AFL-CIO union's and if you're not aware about unions, which I was not before this, um, there are about a handful of incredibly powerful unions that represent the workers. And the AFL-CIO union represents about 60 different unions, each representing the workers, the backbones of America. They make our country run. These are the people who take care of our children of our in the hospitals in our home the nursing homes the plumbers the people who create the roads the postal workers the fire departments the nurses the teachers but because of Ramon has been in this business for 30 years has run hundreds of campaigns including supporting presidential campaigns His wealth of experience is bar none. And because he's such an honorable person, (laughs) the doors are open for us. So he puts me in front of the leaders of some of the major unions in our state and in our country and allows me to share the vision of the TREAT California Act. And every single meeting we've had, They are supporting us and they are in the process of working through the the, uh, procedures that they do to endorse us. And I'm proud to share with you that we got the endorsement from the Long Beach Firefighter Union before we even submitted our legislation, which was the first in union history. We also got the support of the American Postal Workers for the Los Angeles area and San Diego areas. This ground-level support from the people, these are everyday workers who are suffering themselves, their family members are, and they're also taking care of people who are suffering. So when we show up and we say, you know, this is not a cure-all, I do not think psychedelic-assisted therapy is going to cure every person, but I say if we can address 10% of the population that's suffering from depression, anxiety, addiction, just ten percent they're otherwise not treated by. We're saving we don't even talk about money, but we're saving people's lives. And those workers who, you know, have to miss days of work either because they're suffering from something or they're family members and they have to take a day off to go help with a family member who's needs help or in the people that they're also taking care of. It's just we're in the state of a mental health care crisis so that when I'm in front of these union leaders and I'm talking to them about their members, they feel this. This is not just another political campaign. This is not just a way to go waste some more you know, money of the government. This is actually a real solution. And, and so they line up. And so then in addition to that, We've got the veteran community because this is where it all began for me with the great work that MAPS did, you know, the nonprofit MAPS Mm -hmm. and the clinical trials that they were looking at the veteran community. And of course, the veteran community is near and dear to me. But we're talking about our vets right now, 40 suicides or self-harm a day in our veteran community, in large part by PTSD. And I have met Many of them. And in fact, we have six former Navy SEALs on our team. We have Mm. two generals on our team. I have a three star general, the former commanding officer of the U.S. Marines,
2: Mm.
1: on our team. And he has been educating the federal government and the VA about the importance of funding this research for our vets who right now are failing therapies and they have to leave the country to undergo psychedelic assisted therapies. And uh, they come back, many of them, not all, many of them come back, changed human beings. And in fact, I like to go off on this little tangent here for you because it's so important. Uh, Rick Perry, he, a self-professed uh, knuckle-dragging Republican mm-hmm. from Texas, yeah. um, had, a, had a, an aide. On his team, who was a former uh, vet who was struggling with PTSD, and on average, these people, you know, it was decades of struggling, barely making it to work, and all that kind of thing. And he left the country and underwent psychedelic-assisted therapy and came back. And Rick Perry noticed, and he said, "What? What? What's going on? What's the difference?" And the guy shared it with him, and he said, "Oh my God, we, we, ha- I have to do something." So he went to his legislation, and in 2020. Passed a bill that afforded $100 million in Texas Mm. to study psychedelic assisted therapy for the veterans. So, the veteran community is, is one that is so desperately in need, like so many Americans are. But the veterans are something that the political right can relate to. So, we picked this community to help. Bridge the divide that is tearing our country apart right now and say this is not a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. This is a human issue, and that we have to take care of our veterans as well as our first responders. I've gotten to know the firefighters. I've learned shockingly that suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst our firefighters now. Mm. I met with the head of the California Firefighters Union and I'm working with Dr. Sarah Abadie, who is another remarkable human being. And she left her practice at UCLA as an ER physician because she was so tired with uh, patients repeatedly coming into the ER and, and not being able to treat them at all. And because of she's this caring, compassionate person that she is, she's met met a few of them that actually left patients that left the country that underwent psychedelic assisted therapy and came back and visited with her, and she just couldn't believe the change. And she herself was traumatized being in the ER during COVID, and and uh, they call it this wounded healer, this moral deterioration of not being able to really to help people and not having any support about all the trauma, the emotional trauma of which, you know, these are our first responders taking care of us and they are having problems. And so she left and became uh, trained as a psychedelic assisted therapist and participated in clinical trials. And they're launching a trial at the VA again to help address this unmet need within the VA. So we've got the veteran community supporting us. Mm-hmm. We've got the union people supporting us. And now we have, we've got the LGBTQ community. where There are about 3 million uh, voters that identify as LGBTQ. Um, and this community is being particularly hard hit in today's political environment. And they are rallying behind us to help. Um, they're very politically active as well. And then lastly, we' we're reaching the university students. Uh, we believe that the future is is in the youth, and they they don't have the hangover, what I call the hangover from the dare to say no campaigns. They're mm. much more open-minded, they're much more interested in problem solving, and i I ache for the world that this generation is inheriting from us, but I also have great hope because it's a great generation so Uh, We've got the kids, too, that are supporting this, so and Mm. they're showing up.
0: Well, it does sound like we have reached a tipping point here culturally and politically and um, hopefully scientifically, and it's just very exciting to hear from you about what it's like on the front lines there. You've named some of the clinical applications here, addiction, depression, PTSD. We can also add end-of-life anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, you pr- probably we can extend the list beyond that. But then there's also just the betterment of well people, which I know mm-hmm. uh, Roland Griffiths, who I've, mm-hmm. I've spoken with on the podcast before, has been focusing on. Robin, what you know, take any piece of this that you want, but I think we should discuss what compounds we're talking about and how do you think we should prioritize, or and how, or how are you prioritizing? the study of them and, and what what seems most promising? What do you think we're, we're going to see, you know, at, at the bedside first? I mean, just what, what, what's happening here on the research front?
2: Well, clearly a lot. <laughs> it's uh, having uh, such an impact now. I mean, even as we speak, uh, another big paper has landed in Nature Medicine. It was the second of two phase three trials that MAPS uh, sponsored Rick Dobler, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, and MDMA therapy for post traumatic stress disorder. And the results of this trial are as positive as the previous phase three trial. And so, you know, the FDA asked for two positive phase three trials. They've got them now. Uh, those results are in the public domain. So, MDMA therapy is the furthest along in terms of being federally approved as a Prescribable medicine, and we know you know how it has to be delivered as a combination treatment. It's not just the drug; that's a really important principle of psychedelic therapy. The clues in the name: it's not just psychedelics we're talking about. It's this combination with the way the drugs are given. And uh, so, MDMA is uh, front of the queue, and mm-hmm. uh, the forecasts are uh, for next year in terms of approval. We'll see.
0: But, and, and would would the approval be for narrowly for PTSD or is it for these other conditions as well, like uh, depression or end of life anxiety or?
2: It's for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were the specific trials. That was the specific indication. So that's on the label. That's the first uh, you know, right. indication on the label. But but you know, clinicians can prescribe off label, and they do. So it, it's possible that uh, they could be. Um, providing that intervention for other indications but you know it's sort of baby steps once it's through the through the gate and it will be ptsd and it'll be a slow process of collecting safety data um, before you know large numbers of people are being treated with with mdma therapy but it's it's the big milestone is getting the first psychedelic therapy through fda approval so these you know state level initiatives are you know, another thing, but that's the sort of, you know, classic, traditional, formal medical model with the FDA that uh, MDMA therapy is on the cusp of, of getting that approval. And, and next in the queue is uh, psilocybin therapy. So there's a phase three trial currently underway, sponsored by Compass Pathways. Mm-hmm. And there the indication is treatment-resistant depression, somewhat building on uh, the work that we did at um, Imperial College London doing the first psilocybin therapy for depression trial there and that was in treatment-resistant depression published in 2016. So yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be the first uh, phase three trial of psilocybin therapy for treatment-resistant depression and I think forecast there uh, something in the domain of 26, 2026 for... Mm-hmm having that work done and that going to the FDA. So that's, uh, that's kind of where we are right now. Then there's a bunch of other compounds, of course. Um, you know, Ketamine already is used as a medicine and ketamine therapies is happening right now at some scale, uh, treating depression and so on, rapid acting antidepressant. Somewhat a different model and also a different compound. I'm not sure I would lump it in with psychedelics personally. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that that term is a little too fuzzily defined or there's a lack of a, a, a crisp definition really. But that's there. And then there are other compounds, other classic psychedelics such as LSD. Trials are being done and published on LSD therapy for depression, also alcohol. Dependence, Michael Bogan shoots. Um, and there's DMT, It's a rapid-acting, uh, classic psychedelic. It's given intravenously in uh, some of the work that's being done at the moment. Some of the studies we've done at Imperial with brain imaging is given that drug intravenously. It's, it's the main psychedelic component of ayahuasca, the Amazonian brew. And then there's mescaline, Journey Collab are looking at that with an interest in addiction. So there's there's quite a lot. How
1: about Ibogaine?
2: Yeah, Ibogaine as well. There's uh, some very, very interesting naturalistic work having been done with Ibogaine in in veterans with uh, different aspects of of mental illness, addictions, PTSD, likely some brain injury um, issues as well. And so some very promising data coming out of that from uh, Nolan Williams at Stanford um, doing sort of observational work and also some brain imaging and in, in people going off to Mexico to have these treatments. Very exciting, interesting, compound, exciting findings. So that's, uh, that's another one too. Yeah, there's a lot going on.
0: Well, notwithstanding what Jeannie said about the need to do a lot more research to assess the safety of these drugs, mm. what do we know about the physiological toxicity or safety of the mm. various compounds? I mean, cause he, my understanding is with something like psilocybin or LSD, there really is no indication that it's physically toxic, mm. apart from the the possibility of having a bad psychological outcome and and you know, in the worst case, obviously hurting yourself or killing yourself the way Jeannie described in a you know taking these medications out in the wild. But with a drug like MDMA or ketamine, you're talking about something that it, where there there really is a uh, an LD fifty you know a a, mm. a, a lethal dose mm. that um, could be easily specified, mm. and and perhaps there's some physiological toxicity that we know about. In those drugs, uh, even at safe doses, many times repeated. So, what, what can you say to safety? I mean, in reality, there's, there are a lot of people listening to this who are, you know, they they might be very supportive of everything we're we're, we're talking about here and and building a a well governed therapeutic model for for helping people with the most relevant compounds. But in reality, we, we there are also millions of people who are who have taken these quote recreationally. You happen to be talking to one of them right now, and um, in making decisions about what to take, there are differences here, and obviously we should add the caveat uh, that not everyone should take these compounds, certainly not in a situation where they are they haven't seen to all of the uh, necessities of uh, set and setting, and I've talked about that in at great length on other podcasts with people like Roland Griffiths and James Fadiman and others, but um, there are just differences here, and we should also stipulate that in many cases, unless you're in the presence of something like psilocybin mushrooms, you're taking something that, unless you've had it studied in a lab, you don't, you can't be sure you're taking the compound you think you're taking. So all of those caveats aside, in the presence of the actual compounds, can you differentiate any safety concerns at the, at the physiological level? Yes,
2: absolutely. I mean, the compounds are often... Too easily lumped together as, you know, say psychedelics, but they're really quite distinct and the toxicity profiles are quite distinct. I mean, the dose makes the poison. So even those compounds with the better therapeutic uh, indices, meaning that a therapeutic dose to a dangerous or lethal dose could be massive. And in the case of, say, psilocybin, it is a very large therapeutic index. So that's very positive you know, but uh, tighter with LSD, actually, you know, LSD is very potent, so it is mm-hmm. not so hard to overdose on LSD, and, and then it's not just a psychological risk, but there's also some physiological risk as well. MDMA carries some toxicity uh, in high doses, There's some evidence of neurotoxicity, but in therapeutic doses, it seems unlikely. Then you have uh, other organs that uh, where MDMA can be toxic to those as well. The liver, ketamine, it has high toxicity, some appreciable toxicity for the bladder and a metabolite of that. So that can be a problem. There have been cases of people having their bladders removed from excessive use of, of ketamine.
0: Ketamine is also addictive, right?
2: It is another part of the risk profile, elevated risk profile, I'd say, with, with ketamine. I see ketamine, you know, ketamine therapy as a kind of placeholder mm. for interventions like psilocybin therapy coming down the line. A number of different angles in which psilocybin therapy, I think, is superior to ketamine. The toxicity... It's got the rapid action, but it's also got a more enduring action. In my mind, it's a deeper quality of action as well. A lot of effect on um, psychological insight, emotional release that perhaps you don't get so easily with ketamine. That pro- that's probably you know part of the reason why it has a longer tail in terms of a therapeutic response, psilocybin versus ketamine. So a lot of differences. Then you know, we talked about ibogaine a little bit there. There's some cardiotoxicity questions. And actually, that's really hampered some of the clinical research with that mm. compound. There hasn't been much in terms of control studies with ibogaine because of question marks over how safe it is in terms of, you know, um, cardio uh, risk.
1: Most people don't differentiate ketamine which is an analgesic, and MDMA, which is a type of amphetamine, Mm -hmm. don't really fall into the class of a true hallucinogen, which are mainly tryptamine derivatives. And so I also want to point out that both ketamine and MDMA are addictive um, Mm. and have different uh, physiological properties. Not so sure
2: on MDMA.
1: Yeah, okay, to be be explored, because amphetamines in general
2: Amphetamines yes but yeah. MDMA, uh, MDMA is quite different to okay. other amphetamines in terms of I mean am, amphetamines as a class have that very strong okay. dopamine release but serotonin release is yeah. 10 times that of dopamine yeah. so it's it's quite it's quite distinct i would say from most other amphetamines and also there isn't there isn't clear evidence that people take MDMA and in a sort of Moorish way, you know, crave it. Mm. Uh,
1: so, what I'm hoping, of course, is that we can actually really study this and track data and track and, and determine if it is indeed addictive or not. Mm. But until we have the funding to do this, we we these are all open-ended questions. And I just also wanted to highlight, I think, for ketamine, I th- I think one of the best applications will be for acute suicidality. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the studies are showing for people that are showing up uh, acutely suicidal in the ER. Oftentimes, you sedate the person, you admit the person, you put them on a hold, and you 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 wait until the SSRIs uh, kind of kind of kick in. It's just a sort of standard of care, but uh, ketamine, the fast-acting effect, appears to allow the patient to feel not depressed for a moment,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: in that. Feeling they can hold on to that thread, actually, of, of hope of not always feeling so depressed, which is what leads people to be suicidal. Mm. So, but when we're talking about what we're what we're going to be studying in in the Treat Institute, is mostly the true hallucinogens that don't have patents on them, too, because they don't get funding.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh,
1: Federal uh, pharmaceutical companies don't get involved in them, and so. I think it's really important to look at all the qualities of these medicines and the impacts on on the individuals and I also want to highlight that what we hope to do is we're going to create a what will be the largest bioinformatics data bank in the world focused on mental health and of course we'll make it cyber secure and anonymous and people patients will opt in but we plan on uh, doing complete genomic sequencing, genetic sequencing, including Mm -hmm. all the omics, the panomics, the proteomics, the epigenetic changes, and then also including the information coming from all the scanning devices, the fMRIs, the wearable devices, and then overlay that with what we call the phenotypic expression. So a patient presents with anxiety, depression, PTSD, and oftentimes complex stuff and or addiction Um, as well as all the other mental health issues, what we can call. And that by understanding perhaps the biology of, say, Robin sitting across the table from me has a different makeup of his serotonin receptors and his dopamine receptors that may be more amenable to a particular type of psychedelic versus another type. And so it's truly becoming more patient-specific what is best for him what will improve his probability of healing from these medicines, or gaining insights that empower him to incorporate new uh, habits in his life? And likewise, he may be more open to being in a group therapy to start, or not. Maybe he maybe wants to be in a one-on-one to get more comfortable with the medicines and then be in a group therapy. So we don't see it as such a prescriptive therapeutic approach where each person gets, you know, this amount for this amount of time in these, under these set settings, I think it's important to talk about the, the variety by which we can learn to heal and uh, make that available. Mm. So I'd add that. Uh,
0: on this issue of further research, study by study, what, can you give me a sense of what a well-run study costs th- at the moment? Mm. Sure. Well, gosh, uh, a well-run study. How do you define that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I I know there's a, a wide range, and, and Jeannie just floated the idea that we would be tracking thousands of people, ideally, in studies. But the sorts of studies that are being run now, let's, let's say the, the MAP study that's in you know stage three clinical trials, what do those studies cost? Hundreds of millions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say. I mean, it took MAPS 37 years, I believe, from its beginning to finish two phase three trials to the tune of about $150 million. Mm. So it took, you know, 37 years. So what we hope to do is, um, because we have this great clinical trial infrastructure here in our state with incredible academic institutions, as well as contract research organizations, we'll determine which ones can be most efficient and most cost effective. We can run trials with thousands of patients in a short period of time. Mm. Because we mm. want to try to find a therapy that actually um, is safe and efficacious, and then determine under what parameters should those patients receive this medicine. Mm.
2: Yeah, uh, you know those phase three trials. A total sample—what's it going to be? Or in the ballpark of three hundred people or something. I you, think. Know, 300
1: people, it usually, a, you know, three hundred people. Usually, it's you know—it's a very difficult number to quantify because I've run another startup company, and you know, depending upon who you get and how you get and how many people you have to have in it, but it, you know. It's on the order of, I mean, I think the smallest you can do is almost a million, you know, maybe, Um, really realistically with people that you know. But on average, I think it would be fair to say that it's at least 100 million. Mm.
2: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, of course, there's so many different types of studies and trials. And the first investigator-led trials, like the the, uh, treatment-resistant depression trial, we did it imperial we got some uk medical research council money to make that possible and that was let's see the, the first amount was i think it was even half a million mm-hmm. um so that ended up being a 20 patient trial open label because of some philanthropy that came in but uh, for a long time you know we were we were very much working on fumes <laughs> we had volunteer staff you know, working on the trials, and we were just doing it kind of out of passion as much as anything. Mm. So things have changed a huge amount since then.
0: What do you think is happening in the brain at this point, Robin? When when we take one of the classic serotonergic psychedelics, so LSD, mm. psilocybin. I mean, I'd be interested to know what you think is happening with MDMA as well. But yeah, uh, and I think you said you did a an fMRI study on DMT. Yeah. too. What is it? Give, give me the the mapping that we uh, mm. are reasonably confident in at this point. Yeah,
2: I think it's, it's fair to say we're reasonably confident now because we've, we've had, you know, personally, I've done three studies with three classics. Uh, DMT was the most recent. And uh, so there are some principles that are emerging. Um, one of them is that Uh, if we look at brain networks, which is more the way that we think of human brain function and making mappings to high-level cognition and and conscious states, we're we're much more thinking about brain networks now, their dynamics. And uh, there we see that across the board with psilocybin, LSD, DMT, you see a breakdown in the integrity of brain networks. And this is actually quite true across you know, a repertoire of major brain networks, but especially so in high-level brain networks, uh, networks that we describe as transmodal, meaning they don't just do one thing, but they mm-hmm. do a few things. They're involved in a lot, including you know, the highest level aspects of, of human cognition or consciousness. So we see the integrity of of those networks, the different nodes, the different parts that make them up, uh, that breaks down. And at the same time, uh, those networks open up their communication profiles. So rather than being very segregated from each other, very insular, they start to communicate more with each other. And we can describe that a few different ways. We could call it desegregation, network desegregation. So you have Within network disintegration, and you have between network desegregation, where Mm. um, at the global level, as in the whole of the brain, you could describe a global increase in in functional integrity. There's there's more, there's always more, of course. Mm. And, uh, you know, I haven't even gone into the pharmacology that with the classic psychedelics, one of the ways that we could define them, I don't think we can. We should only define them this way because it glosses over the phenomenology, which I actually think is is key for a definition uh, of these drugs. But we do know with a high degree of confidence, really mostly from the human research, and I think that is pivotal here actually, we know that stimulating directly a certain serotonin receptor is key to their action. And we know that because there's a very tight, positive correlation between the affinity or stickiness or we call it binding potential of a given psychedelic for that receptor specifically and its potency. So Are these uh,
0: still the 2A receptors?
2: Yeah, the serotonin 2A receptors, yeah. yeah. So higher affinity, more potent. Yeah, LSD, very high affinity, very potent compound. And then we also know that if you pre-treat with a serotonin 2A receptor blocker, we call those antagonists, then the psychedelic can't hit its target because it's blocked and you Mm -hmm. don't trip. You don't have a psychedelic experience. And then we we also have um, more recent evidence that you can abort a trip by giving the blocker after giving the psychedelic. So Mm -hmm. you know, these are just a, a few examples of really converging evidence on the 2A receptor as being the key initiation site. It's where it all begins, in a sense, with the action.
0: Of at least the classic psychedelics Mm. is MDMA also active through the 2A receptors?
2: Not directly, but uh, really the key sort of signature pharmacological action of MDMA is its serotonin release. Yeah, it's it's really pretty unique in that sense. There aren't many compounds that release serotonin as potently. Yeah, I mean, we have the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants, Prozac-like uh, drugs, but uh, they're just blocking the reuptake. MDMA actually stimulates the release of serotonin, so I sometimes playfully call it a like, turbo-SSRI. Mm. It's sort of spitting out serotonin into the, the synapse, that gap where all the key you know, uh, chemical information transfer happens between neurons. Whoa.
0: In some possible dystopian future, it will be sold under that name in a in a drugstore near you uh, to teenagers. What what do you make of the fact that DMT is actually an endogenous neurotransmitter? I mean, do we know what it might be doing at this point on its own at its uh, ambient level? We don't, but it's one of the great mysteries. And you know, Rick
2: Strassman has classically speculated on that in uh, the Spirit Molecule. It is there. You can find it in the body and you can find it in the brain. And there's also some uh, rodent evidence now that it's released, or at least its concentration spikes up in a dying brain. Mm. And uh, the problem there is a a specificity question because a lot lot spikes up in a dying brain because cells are, are dying and spilling their content in a sense. So serotonin itself spikes up massively. So there's just a little bit of a question mark on there. You know, some people have also questioned whether there's enough of of DMT uh, mm-hmm. endogenously to really have an appreciable sort of functional effect. But then people say, well, you know, during these extreme states, as was shown in that rodent work, maybe it it spikes up, and then maybe then it, you know, that could explain things like the near-death experience because you enter a psychedelic-like state through the action of this endogenous psychedelic. It's a it's a ve- very fun uh, hypothesis, but that's kind of what it is still right now, uh, a hypothesis. Um, there mm. are overlaps in the phenomenology. It's just whether or not we can commit to DMT specifically, you know, responsible, being responsible for that phenomenology. Or, for example, you know, it could be established endogenous neurotransmitters like serotonin, you know, and that's spiking up and mm. hitting its 2A targets and so on.
0: Is there any prospect, do you think, in the near term of us developing and uh, discovering new compounds that w- we just haven't named here? I mean, we, we, we're talking about, we can almost count on one hand the number of compounds we're excited to study, but mm-hmm. I remember meeting the rogue chemist Sasha Shulgin. Mm-hmm. I don't know if either of you ever knew him, yes. but you know, he, it's, to, to hear him talk about it, it sounded like if you just you know walked into his house, he, he could produce you know hundreds of different compounds mm-hmm. that he had privately experimented with and, and catalogued. He, he wrote some uh, very interesting books on that topic. And this, so there's this kind of this thicket of adjacent compounds that mm-hmm. are sitting there to be explored, mm-hmm. I think some of which were described by him as a you know, don't go there again." <laughs> but um, what, what do you think about the prospect that we are? at the very beginning of exploring in a a much wider search space? Mm.
2: Well, we are. I mean, we don't know what we don't know, but people are searching vast libraries, even sort of, you know, libraries of of billions of potential molecules by doing, you know, in silico modeling, computer modeling, and looking at how these these possible chemicals dock at, say, the serotonin-2A receptor. So... You know, there could be almost endless possibilities there in terms of new drugs. Yeah. So, and we could play with the pharmacology and, and try and find, uh, you know, drugs with uh, where we could reduce some of the off target effects. Say, for example, serotonin 2B uh, receptor stimulation is a problem. Mm. Uh, if you have drugs that do that, it can um, sort of fatten up the heart valves and, and call, cause this uh, valvopathy. So, uh, you know, maybe, and you have compounds like, you know, psilocybin, which is metabolized into psilocin, actually hitting the 2B receptor. So, you know, that's been a question mark for things like microdosing or regular use of low doses of, of psilocybin. So, you know, we could improve on the drugs. There is another, that, in a sense, that's a given, And to the point that we don't know what we don't know. And, and, you know, science is always iterative and it it will go on forever, improving, advancing how we understand things. Mm. But there is another thing to say, which is we could be very drug-centric here. And if fundamentally with psychedelic therapy we have a combination treatment, then maybe, you know, there's a lot to be learned about the other side of this, Mm -hmm. the the other side of this bio Psychosocial intervention that isn't just giving the drug, and so we can make advancements there too.
1: Sam, I'd like to share a fun folklore story, if you don't mind, uh, about the Shoguns, because somebody on my team was spent quite a bit of time with them. He was fresh out of college at Princeton way back when and got his PhD in philosophy and taught at Yale. And then, Mm. um, oh yeah, I I forgot, I I met him. Yeah, what's his name again? David Blinder. Yeah. And it's, it's just a wonderful story, but uh, he befriended the shoguns and participated um, regularly. Uh, Sasha would create these compounds and, and pass them out to everybody mm-hmm. and ask them the, the, you know what the side effects were, and then he would uh, meticulously write them down. So upon his death and his wife's deaths recently, there is uh, the shogun library, and there are about 200 compounds that there are efforts to help and preserve them and to bring them to the world of research. And uh, one effort which I hope we will be able to do is if there are some of them that are deserving of of studying, that we can look at it. Because I also want to point out in addition to, and I want to go into what, what's where uh, Robin just left off about the spiritual part of this too, because I think it's really important and would like to bring that up. But there are other... Com- treatment paradigms that this is really seemingly promising for, and a traumatic brain injury is one, and the mm-hmm. neurodegenerative diseases, you know, because of the neuroplasticities, whether there's growth factors in there that seem to perhaps be a disease-modifying compound for Alzheimer's. Uh, I know there's one study that was using uh, psilocybin, I believe, for the treatment of new-onset depression that's oftentimes associated with uh, neurodegenerative disease. In this particular case, it was Parkinson's disease. And um, they noticed that the the motor symptoms were improving, so not only did their depression symptoms improve, but they noticed that the the motor symptoms improved. So I think that there is a room for these medicines to be studied for different applications. I'm also aware of a scientist who's using this to study um, inflammatory diseases, in particularly asthma. and I think, "Wow, you know, when I was in medical school or even practicing medicine, when you hear about a, a cure all, right? I think of the snake oil salesperson peddling the goods that this mm-hmm. is going to, you know, help everything. But these are actually well-run studies, and so it just—it just begs the question that I think that there are many applications that—that that, um, are possibilities, and that we we need to look at them. And then I want to leave that and go back to where Robin left off because I had a couple questions for you, Robin, and I was so curious about. Uh, this study, and you mentioned about desiloing or desegregating, you said, certain areas of the brain. And I wonder if you would just elaborate on that a little bit more, because it's something that I have personally felt in my own brain. And I want to share that by way of saying if, you know, I've studied uh, as a biochemist, and I have that area of my brain is well-developed in math, and then I'm also You know, an athlete, there's a different part of my brain that works. And I like music, and that's a different part of my brain that works. And then the ability to think abstractly is a different part of my brain. And I just personally personally have noticed that since using these medicines therapeutically, that I feel like I have access to these otherwise siloed parts of my brain are now seemingly available to me at the same time. And I was wondering if you could speak to that in some of the fMRI studies that you, I thought you participated in them or, or you're certainly aware of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you, <laughs> did you run that trial, Robin? Uh, probably. <laughs> yeah. It's,
2: well, yeah. Of course, uh, we have to be a bit careful what we feel, <laughs> feel in our brain. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a, a few different principles, as I, as I said. You have, in a sense, organisation and, and structure that's recognised in the brain, like say a brain network, that you can then see decrease in its organisation under drugs. So that's that's you know example of that disintegration or or a loss of structure or a loss of regular you know regularity. A dysregulating action. So that's stuff breaking down, you know? I call that there's a hypothesis I introduced about ten years ago called the entropic brain hypothesis, which is somewhat related here. You can think of entropy in the thermodynamic sense of degradation, things things breaking down the arrow of time. But there's also this intriguing possibility that we have less of a good handle on, which is you know, it takes us back to the definition of these compounds. At least, you know, true classic psychedelics, psyche as uh, mind or more, more accurately, soul. And then the other term means to make manifest or visible. So, you know, while we have aspects of of brain function dysregulating or breaking down, what of you know the um, the hidden order amidst the disorder or the cosmos in the chaos as Carl Jung would say you know what accounts for that what accounts for the insight what accounts for the the apparent uh, you know um, seeing of of things of content say on DMT you know classic aspect of the phenomenology there is that people report these apparent sort of encounters with other sentient beings what's doing that you know i know that really throws people when they have the experience, they're left bamboozled thinking that they, it must be something beyond the brain. Mm. And of course, I think that's a false
0: inference. Well, that, well, that brings, us, that brings yeah. us back to your naive thesis that you mentioned a while ago, which is mm. the, the, by analogy to dreams, right? I mean, mm. the, the dreams are an experience where we routinely seem to feel an experience that we're in, in the presence of, of other autonomous beings right Mm. and you know that's you know everyone's had that experience you know you're talking Mm. to somebody who you really think is there and then you wake up and you realize it wasn't what you thought it was so does that offer some some phenomenological clue to what might be happening during the dmt flash
2: yeah i think it does yeah i think it's a useful useful analogy uh there you know the dream is entirely compelling There's no doubt that you're experiencing that in the moment, and yet you're not.
0: You know. I guess the one the one thing that fans of some metaphysical claim here would want to say at this point is that that doesn't explain the apparent convergence phenomenologically in the reports that people give of of the kinds of entities they they encounter while on Mm. DMT. I don't know. I I remember Rick Strassman's book on this topic, but uh, I haven't followed whatever research mm. has been done of late. It, mm. I can imagine it'd be somewhat hard to find a volunteer for a DMT study who had never heard Terence McKenna or anyone else rave about <laughs> the phenomenology. Mm. How impressive is that convergence of report on what the landscape looks like during the experience?
2: Well, there's some convergence, but of course, there's, <laughs>
0: I say of course, there's this thing
2: called the collective unconscious and archetypes and you know certain human themes that get Hmm. in a sense imprinted because we experience them a lot you know like the hero's journey it's classic it's arguably you know universal and and somewhat culturally independent at the most basic level at the most foundational level so it would be surprising if it was any other way that we wouldn't have archetypal like experiences you know under these these compounds experience you know tricksters that can and then morph into a you know maternal archetype a mother archetype or uh, and then switch back again so that's the human you know that's human nature the human psyche so i don't think there's anything that should draw us into beyond the brain kind of speculations there based Hmm. on any kind of convergence. It just speaks to, in my mind, the collective unconscious. And yeah, yeah, I could go on. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. I mean, a dominant model in cognitive neuroscience now is, is one that a, a friend and a colleague of mine, Shamil Chandaria, spoke about recently mm-hmm. on your podcast, the, the hierarchical predictive processing model. Um, very compelling model of how the brain works, in a sense, that's increasingly influential. Including in psychiatry. And there, you know, the model says that we experience the world through these generative models, this kind of coarse graining of what's what. But the key principle is that there's a dominant directionality to the information flow that, that in a sense, you could describe as top down. And that's what's carrying the prediction, carrying the inference, is that we're experiencing the world through our internal models. That's what's dominating, you know, the handshake, if you want, is that top-down, model, model-first model kind of flow. Now, into that mix, I, I dropped psychedelics, in a sense, and proposed that what psychedelics do is they impact the, what's called in technical terms, the precision weighting, but in more sort of accessible terms, we could just call the weighting, the weighting or the influence of the predictive models and psychedelics dial it down so that our internal models are less convincing and stuff can come up because of that
1: yeah
0: yeah i mean it's just in a very basic psychological sense when you look at why people suffer and this is you know leaving aside even extreme clinical cases, just the, the ordinary, routine suffering of ordinary people who may not have any diagnosis to speak of. Mm. So much of the the character of our suffering is this imprisonment in certain patterns of thinking and reacting yes. to just ordinary experience. I mean we're we're ruminating all day long. Mm. We're having a very unprofitable conversation with ourselves that mm. in my view Also, impressively resembles what it's like to be asleep and dreaming. I mean, you know, there's something about identification with thought that is is just as uh, spurious in the end as being asleep and dreaming and not knowing that you're dreaming. And it's pretty easy to see that certain ways of disrupting that would offer a kind of, uh, you know, disrupting and resetting would offer a Mm. kind of opportunity for relief.
2: Quite yeah I mean it it's true of psychopathology, I think, mental illness, so much of it depression, anorexia, you know these habits of of thinking, getting fixated on certain ideas in a sense, you know that we we're worthless or that we're too big and but also it's the case you know in domains that we wouldn't ordinarily think of as as Psychopathological or of mental illness, you know, even politics or religion. We can, I, I borrow a term from evolutionary science, which is which is canalization. It, mm. it means the entrenchment of traits so that they become stamped in and, and resistant to change, resilient to change. It's the opposite, actually, of of the most basic definition of plasticity, which is the ability to be to change, to be shaped or molded. Um, yeah. So canalization is the inverse of that. You know, but, but even our very sense of self or identity or ego is a product of the same canalization or identifying with thoughts.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just, on that point, how much of it is a story still of the default mode network being downregulated during mm. the psychedelic experience? Is that still... Yeah part of the signature of what's happening? Yeah,
2: I'd say we've moved on a, a little bit. That was a finding of, of ours in, in the first fMRI study that we did. In fact, the first fMRI study of, of psilocybin, 2012, mm. we found that the default mode network was especially implicated. Its integrity broke down, as I was describing, this disintegration effect. And uh, other changes also kind of pointed at this This default mode network, this dominant network in in the brain that is you know kind of capital city in the brain. It's a hub of connectivity, of high metabolism, tonically active in the background, hence default mode. Yeah. So we saw that that dysregulated and and in a sense disintegrate under the psilocybin, and we also saw that effect correlate in different analyses over time with ratings of ego dissolution. So we made a kind of one-to-one mapping there that maybe it's related to that experience mm-hmm. of ego dissolution. And that, that had a big impact as an idea and it sort of became in a sense this canalized story in, mm-hmm. in itself. I'd say we've moved on a little bit because I think uh, it was a little too centered on one particular network. There are other neighboring networks, also high level, that break down under psychedelics and are also implicated or, you know, that breakdown correlates with ratings of, of ego dissolution as well. So I just think it was too focused on one particular network. I don't think it's wrong as an idea. There's just more to it, as there
1: always is, of course. Mm-hmm. How about the critical window period that Gull is introducing?
2: Well, that's a nice one too. Yeah. So, you know, we have these periods early in life when we're hyperplastic. You know, just think of kids and, and how they can pick up language languages so easily in the early years, and then that window of plasticity or sort of spongibility that you take on so much closes and, and we become less plastic and less able to learn. So yeah, that uh, critical period, plasticity has been uh, especially well articulated by Gould Dolan, and it, it very much fits the model, you know that psychedelics reopen these. These uh, critical periods of plasticity, or just generally open windows of plasticity, Mm. and then we has that been
0: tested with respect to learning of anything, languages or otherwise? Not
2: very well in humans in terms of learning paradigms and accelerating learning. We did do one study with LSD, where we had a a certain cognitive flexibility paradigm where we were able to look at, at learning rate you know how quickly you could learn in this case a rule mm-hmm. and just like the way symbols relate to each other is quite yeah. a sort of low-level psychological paradigm but we did see that there was an acceleration in learning rate there but there, sh- there should be more <laughs> work in that kind of space than there has been yeah let's see mm-hmm.
0: Where um, you, you mentioned microdosing and passing at some point, mm. where, where does the research stand there? I, I remember a study that came out not long ago suggesting that it really was a, um, some version of the placebo effect.
2: Yeah yeah, that's right. another one of ours. but uh, mm. yeah, so that was Balash Sageti, and uh, there we did an interesting design, a self-. You have self-blinded citizen science study, so we sort of advertised to people, or really Balash led this, and he advertised to people intending to microdose that, oh, why don't you, you know, get some capsules and, and close some empty capsules and do your own, you know, blinding paradigm as if you're running a double-blind randomized control mm-hmm. trial. It was very clever. Yeah, that's um, clever, yeah, we got a, a couple of hundred people to do it, so the biggest sample I think to date on, on microdosing, it was LSD and mushrooms, you could do either. And there we found that most of the positive effects that people were reporting could be explained by thinking you were getting a microdose. So if you got placebo and thought it was a microdose, you did as well as if you hmm. actually got the microdose. So the, the evidence is a bit mixed and I think the rationale is good and the theory is good that low doses of psychedelics could in a sense lubricate the mind, lubricate the brain, open a bit of plasticity without necessarily having a big trip and maybe you could do something with that window of opportunity, that window of plasticity. Problem is there hasn't been good enough research done yet. It's hard to do Mm. microdosing studies because... You know, by definition, it's a a dosing regimen. So you're going to be doing a lot of dosing. And are the ethics boards, the IRBs, going to allow you to give participants psychedelics to take home to do this? Probably not. So then you have to do it in a lab. And Mm. the typical protocol with microdosing is a few weeks of, of sort of one day on, one day off, or some variation on that. So, so that's a lot of visits, and that's going to be, you know, horribly expensive. And, and it, it's these kind of practical challenges that have meant that we haven't done very good microdosing studies. And, and when the control studies have been done, they haven't really come through with compelling evidence. So I would just say, watch this space on microdosing as an idea. It's quite, quite interesting, if not even compelling, but the evidence isn't there yet.
0: Well, another reason to fund some research.
1: Do you know, Sam, I would like to ask you, your understanding of religion, and religion before it was even organized religion, um, the ability of these religious leaders to seemingly tap into what we experience in the psychedelic space, Of this feeling of unity with everybody and everything in the universe, as if it's some form of some religions would call it God, and that boundary between the spiritual slash metaphysical and the biological—you know, the the chemistry, the biochemistry, the physics—that's happening in our brains—and I, I'm, I'm guessing you've you've considered this quite a bit, and I just wondered if you would share?
0: Yeah, well, I, I talk about it a lot, especially over at Waking Up, the our meditation app. I mean, it's a very big question. I, mean, I think there's a, a few high-level things I would demarcate. I mean, one is I think, you know, I, I have been for you know many years now a, a fairly vociferous critic of organized religion, not because I don't think the core experiences that Lie at the founding of all or most of our religions are, are valid and in- interesting and worth having and exploring and understanding. But because I think they are so important and interesting, and we obviously need a 21st century, truly non denominational, non sectarian, non divisive, not irrational framing of those experiences. So the, the reason why I want to get out of the religion business is because I think these mutually incompatible claims of our our various Iron Age and, and medieval religions just are blocking a, a more sophisticated and useful and not divisive conversation that's possible. So, you know, so insofar as I can help inspire that conversation, I've been, I've been trying to do that. And in various moments, my criticism of, of organized religion has been fairly denigrating, but I'm also realistic that I, you know I don't think I'm going to live to see a day where there are no longer Christians, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus all vying for recognition of the unique veracity of each of their faiths. And I also I just think we're we're in very different lanes here. I mean I think I would you know just do nothing but celebrate the fact that you could reach out to a fundamentalist Christian and convince them that they want to support your, the treat initiative very much within the context of their. Christianity, right? Like, this is, uh, you know, I don't think you should be in the business of pointing out what is wrong with Christianity. No. Uh, that, that's my job. <laughs> but, um, but can, a... you, can I share
1: with you? Could I share with yeah. you real quick? Yeah, the first. The first, uh, I'd submitted the legislation, uh, I think it was July 17th and putting in long hours. And at the end of the night, uh, uh there was a voice memo. And I debated whether I wanted to listen to it or not, because if it was something that might upset me, it might upset my sleep. But for some reason, I decided to listen to it, and I wanted to share this with you because I think it's just jaw-dropping remarkable to me. It was from a very conservative Christian, white man, who said, I read your legislation, and I think it's the most impactful and important legislation I've ever read. And he said, and I'm a conservative white Christian, and we get a bad rap these days. Mm. And, uh, but I want you to know we're not all bad, and I support you 100%. So, of course, I called nice. him later and asked him if he could post it on our website. Uh. <laughs> so I didn't mean to interrupt, but it just, yeah, um, I, it was just further affirmation that this goes beyond politics and religion, and that there's so much suffering out there that uh, people are starving for. So, a new solution.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, what, I mean, what it promises to me is something like a twenty-first century version of a new mysteries of Eleusis. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, is, this is the, you know, love the secretive rite that was. Yeah. You know, at the foundation of a fair amount of Greek mm-hmm. philosophy, mm-hmm. but it, you know, by its very nature, it was organized. It was mm-hmm. orderly. It was not a matter of handing out. These compounds to everyone to use recreationally. Right. I mean, I'm very supportive of decriminalization, but I'm also mm-hmm. very supportive of, of circumspection and how we move into this space. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, I say that, you know, it's, it's a fair amount of apparent hypocrisy to untangle here because, you know, I, my own personal and illegal use of these compounds was absolutely indispensable back in the day. I mean, it, was, it really got me. Started in, in thinking about all of these things, and, mm-hmm. and I, I really don't think I would have become interested in the in the nature of the mind and the contemplative life. I, mean, I just think I was I was a hard enough case when I was a an eighteen year old undergraduate in college that that I just if you had taught me to meditate at that point, mm-hmm. I think I just would have bounced off the whole project. So I, it's mm-hmm. I, you know I, I just think we we as a culture, you know, as much as I want to get out of the religion business and get past all of the political liabilities of of that as i see them and the the unscientific bias that i think is built into it i think secular culture is really starving for a a fully wise mm-hmm. uh, language by which mm-hmm. to you know organize our lives and mm-hmm. so we have to make the best uses of all of the human conversations that have preceded this moment so i, I mean i think we should grab what's everything that's useful in religion and philosophy and literature and art and every other corner of discourse but I, I just think we we have to recognize that you know what we have in each moment going forward personally and collectively is consciousness and its contents and our only dimly emerging understanding of how anything uh, that seems to be happening is is happening in the first place and Science remains the leading edge of, of that understanding. And what we need is a, a really rich first person side of that inquiry. And the introduction of psychedelics into the conversation puts the, the furthest reaches of human well being and insight into reach for normal people. I mean, this is, you know, normally you would have to be the kind of person who would be willing to spend a year on silent retreat. You know, to begin to touch what someone can touch in four hours under proper guidance given a compound mm-hmm. like MDMA or psilocybin. And so it's, um, it's not to say that there aren't differences between meditation and psychedelics. I, I've talked about those in other contexts, but there's a fair amount of overlap there as well. And so I, I just think it's, it's fantastic what, what you guys are doing. And um, I really appreciate you both coming on the podcast to talk about it.
1: Well, thank you. And and just a quick shout out to Brian for his book, The Immortality Key. Yeah, where it's just a brilliant uh, recounting of of that time. And again, I want to highlight that the, it was the women priestess that were there to serve these medicines, and that and that that's what we intend to do in today's age, <laughs> to bring these medicines thoughtfully to. The public in a safe way, but introducing a new model, a completely new model, where we do embrace the human being human again, and being able to talk about that, and being able to connect with one another with compassion and understanding, appreciation for we are more than just a collection of, of neurons in our brain. We are part of a collective... Group a super organism, if you will, of this you know Homo sapiens, and that um, it's time for us to focus our efforts on helping helping others and also taking agency over one's one's own sense of self. And I believe you know there's oftentimes I've been involved with some really interesting research projects, and oftentimes ahead of my ahead of ahead of the head of the curve. And so timing in life is is so crucial too. And I hope that what I'm feeling is this groundswell, this need, this readiness of society actually to be open to a new approach to dealing with pain and suffering. And I say welcome to Tree, California.
0: Nice. Give me that website again.
1: <laughs> TreatCalifornia.org.
0: Excellent. Well, I look forward to supporting you, and I hope our listeners will as well. Jeannie, Robin, thank you for your time.
1: Thanks, Thanks. you. Thank you.